0: This is an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Aaron Katursky. A new and unnerving pattern has emerged
1: in some coronavirus patients. From the start of the pandemic, doctors have known the virus targets the respiratory system now more patients are developing blood clots they've become so common doctors in spain are giving blood thinners to every infected patient and a number of hospitals in this country are now considering whether to do the same dr mohammed panwar a cardiology resident at tulane medical center successfully treated a patient with a blood clot and he joins us now from new orleans tell us about this patient and what you learned
2: this was a young gentleman who had no risk factors for blood clots and just came in with COVID infection, just like anybody else that has COVID had the same symptoms. Mm. What made it tricky to diagnose in this patient and in others too, is that the symptoms of a lung clot, which can be chest pain, shortness of breath, those symptoms can be seen, are commonly seen in COVID infection, and they are seen in pulmonary embolism or lung clot as well. So it can be really tricky to sort of figure out what is causing what. It was actually, you know, I was part of a team, you know, taking care of this patient. it was my colleague that sort of had the initial suspicion for a lung clot because these are symptoms that can present in somebody who's having a pulmonary embolism. And she had the foresight to really go ahead and get the CAT scan order to make sure that that's not what the patient had.
1: Thank goodness you did.
2: Yeah, and I think as a team we got really lucky. Um, and, and now that I really think about it, you know, um, patients with covid infection a lot of them seem to be doing okay and then they suddenly decompensate and they suddenly you know crash and i think personally that they might be having blood clots in their lungs because of the stress response created by the infection because the only thing that can really sort of cause you to decompensate so fast the number one thing we think about is a clot in the lung
1: do we know why the virus Maybe causing these clots?
2: The first aspect is, is the virus itself causing a disorder of clotting? Um, and, and we don't know the answer to that. I, I don't know if that's, that's actually the case. It might be, and further research down the road will reveal it. But I, I think what we know for sure is any situation that results in a lot of inflammation being generated in the body um, uh, creates an environment where it's really easy for blood clots to form. And that inflammation can be generated by any infection. And, and then that's what uh, COVID-19 does. It, it creates a lot of inflammation. And that inflammation comes from the body's response. So it's, it's the body's way of fighting. And one of the side effects of that inflammation is that it generates a, an environment where it's really easy for blood clots to form. And the second part is a, a, in a, an environment of low oxygen or something we call hypoxia meaning that the body, you know, the lungs don't have enough oxygen, um, that can also generate uh, or, or, or make it easy for blood clots to form. And we know that COVID-19 has an affinity for, for lungs, for the lungs, and it can cause, uh, one of the complications is acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, which basically means that the lungs are filled with just junk and fluid, and
1: the body just can't get, any oxygen. Why do some suffer this and not others?
2: That's a great question, and I wish I had an answer for you, Um, but we don't know.
1: What's so frightening, though, is we learn more about what this disease does. We're hearing about more kidney failure, people who've had amputations, now lung clots. My goodness, to to hear about COVID-19 affecting all these organs with such ferocity is scary.
2: It is very scary, but I will also say that... Every day we learn something new about this virus. And, and, you know, every day we learn something that is going to help us develop a treatment, hopefully, or help us save lives.
1: Dr. Mohamed Panwar at Tulane Medical Center. The virus and all of its complications are keeping much of America locked down still, though we've started to hear of toes dipped in the waters of reopening. Retail stores in South Carolina can reopen at 20% customer capacity, Barber shops, nail salons, and other businesses can reopen in Georgia at the end of the week, and certain hospitals in New York will be allowed to once again perform outpatient surgeries. Economic impact aside, the shutdowns and stay-home orders have had another remarkable consequence, particularly apt for Earth Day, April 22nd. Dr. J. Brett Bennington joins us from Hofstra University, where he's the chair of the Department of Geology, Environment, and Sustainability. We're getting a lesson in how much human inactivity can impact the environment.
3: So we're, we're running a, a big experiment here, which, which is an experiment that, that no one would have ever conceived of and been able to do, which is to say, let's shut down pretty much all economic activity on a global scale and see what happens. It certainly does seem to be the case that in some of the you know major populated areas of the world, parts of China, India, uh, air pollution has dropped amazingly. These are places where you have a lot of air pollution um, resulting from vehicles, and nobody's driving all of a sudden.
1: So less pollution, clearer skies, and cleaner water.
3: I don't think there's much information about water. I mean, I've read reports of you know the canals in Venice are are clear, but. I mean, if you think about it, you know, people are still generating sewage and, and generating water pollution just by living at home. But industries have shut down, so it's it's certainly possible that um, uh, industrial water pollution is falling off. There is, you know, that w- the data that I've seen relates to um, air pollution, in particular, nitrogen dioxide, uh, NO2. I um, in the United States, uh, it's not as clear uh, the only city so far that's shown a statistically significant drop in NO2 is Los Angeles.
1: What does this tell you?
3: I think it's, it's going to be really significant because it's going to show us what we could achieve if we transitioned um, our economies away from uh, gaining energy by burning stuff. And we're getting a little taste of what that world might be like.
1: Pretty stunning, though, that it took a virus like this to get the air cleaner so that certain respiratory ailments can go away.
3: People who worry about air pollution have been screaming this from the rooftops for a long time, that, you know, this is a huge burden on public health.
1: I just find it fascinating what you can learn when the entire world goes on pause.
3: That's the, I mean, maybe the silver lining to disasters is that we, you know, when when things go wrong... Um, it generates a lot of data and when we eventually get around to analyzing that data we learn things about the world because we've seen it in an extreme condition
1: Dr. J. Brett Bennington at Hostra and there is another consequence of coronavirus the price of illicit drugs is up and that is worrying federal drug agents Ray Donovan who leads the DEA in New York is with us what do you see
4: Well like every every market or industry the drug trafficking or illicit drug trafficking Ah, uh, criminal networks are being disrupted as well, and the reason for that is really the supply chain is has been completely disrupted.
1: Do you attribute that directly to the virus?
4: Yes, and and and, and I'll tell you how. The pre the precursor chemicals that are needed to manufacture certainly drugs such as fentanyl and methamphetamine come in from China, and if China's shutting down their production of chemicals, it's not going to make its way into Central America into Mexico for uh, refinement of those drugs before it gets smuggled across the border into the United States.
1: And that then means prices have to be going up on the street.
4: That's right. So we've seen an increase of 12% for cocaine prices here in New York. We've seen an increase of 7% for heroin prices. But the highest reported increase is is in marijuana.
1: When the prices for hard drugs go up, an addict could buy a drug with lower potency because it's cheaper... When the market returns to normal, they overdose because they're taking too much.
4: That is uh, one of our concerns is, is is that. So the access to fentanyl right now um, is just not there. It's not what it once was going back uh, prior to the pandemic. And so um, as this, as we get back to normalcy in the next couple of months, our fear is that, yes, there is going to be more drugs coming into the marketplace.
1: What are enforcement efforts like? during the pandemic.
4: I will say this, that the seizures are down, um, arrests are down for obvious reasons, um, but the investigations and the hard work continue throughout the city. You know, obviously we have the pandemic, uh, which really is, is the most important thing, but we, behind that, you have these groups that are somewhat taking advantage of, of, of you know, individuals, and so we're aware of that and we're, we are going after them with uh, all our resources. We haven't stopped,
1: Aaron. Ray Donovan at the DEA New York field office. And coming up, our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jennifer Ashton. I'm Aaron Katursky. You're listening to an ABC News special.
0: You're listening to an ABC News special. COVID-19, what you need to know. Here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach.
5: And with me, as always, is ABC chief medical correspondent, Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, as we continue to learn more and more about the medical features of COVID-19, you touched on this earlier in the week, but now there is a, a bigger focus on abnormal blood clotting. What do we know about that?
6: Well, Amy, this is really interesting. There's recently published clinical data in The Lancet and other peer reviewed medical journals that really are explaining this observation that critical care physicians are seeing in patients in the ICU with COVID-19. And it's all about abnormal blood clotting. Um, so we're seeing these microscopic clots in small arteries, veins, microscopic blood vessels that therefore affect blood flow and oxygen delivery to basically the entire body, brain, heart, lungs, kidney, mm-hmm. skin, intestinal tract. And we heard recently extremities um, leading to an amputation in some cases. So a really atypical and interesting picture that is, is really coming out now. Yeah. So is there any idea among doctors why this is happening? Well, there are some theories, Amy. So what we think we know is that this virus, the COVID-19 virus, actually attaches to cells in our respiratory tract and it attaches to a receptor called the ACE2 receptor. That's how it gets into our body. That's how it infects us. However, these ACE2 receptors are found all over the body. And interestingly, they're also found in the lining of blood vessels all over the body. So in response to that, they can become activated, they can constrict and therefore affect blood flow and clotting. Um, and we're also seeing this picture in other patients with low oxygen levels, sepsis or infection um, and an inflammatory reaction. So we've seen it before with other patients, but it's really becoming much more common in critically ill patients with COVID-19.
5: Yeah. And speaking of these critically ill patients, what do
6: doctors still need to figure out? We need to really connect the dots here, figure out why it's happening, how it's happening, how to prevent it and why we're seeing it in some patients but not others with serious or critical cases of COVID-19. So still a lot to learn. All right, Dr. Jen Ashton, you will be back in just a bit. Well, the governor of
5: Tennessee has announced he will not extend the current stay-at-home order past April 30th. Here to talk about what's happening on the front lines of Nashville and plans for reopening there, we have Mayor John Cooper. Mayor, thanks for being with us. And as I just said, the governor has said, for the good of the state, social distancing will continue, but the economic shutdown will not. What's your response to that? What will your city do?
7: Well, thanks, Amy, and thank you for looking in on us here in Nashville. Um, we're excited. We're excited to get restarted. We'll be doing it, I sure hope, in very early May. Now, here in Nashville, we're, we have a big global economy that requires consumer confidence to restart really well. That's schools, healthcare, our big hospitality industry. We're going to take a data-driven approach which we think we're gonna meet. And that's a 14 day declining average. That's a transmission rate of less than one. That's enough testing and PPE and social uh, contact tracing and investigation capacity. We think we're gonna be ready to do that, but we wanna not fall for a second wave. We don't wanna call victory prematurely. We wanna be ready to get us safely into the next phase.
5: Yeah, so I know you're working with mayors across the state of Tennessee on just how to reopen. I know you obviously want to boost the economy. You want to help small businesses get back on their feet. What are your plans to do just that?
7: Well, the four biggest cities in Nashville are working very closely together. We have different economies, different challenges than more rural areas do. We have more cases. And in some cases, we have a more complicated economy to restart, which does require consumer and customer confidence as well as employees understanding that they're going to be safe, too, as they serve the public. Uh, It's just um, it's an additional challenge that is going to require excellent social protocol techniques being implemented well in business after business.
5: Yeah. And you made a decision early on to issue your own stay at home order. But as we've seen, some people in your city have come out to rally against the closing of those non-essential businesses. What do you say to them?
7: Well, one, I say, I hope you're social distancing appropriately. Um, And it's their right to protest, but it's our right to stay safe. I mean, public health has always had these kind of challenges. It's been enormously difficult, this kind of stay-at-home quarantining for weeks. I'm really surprised that there's not been more pushback. And in Nashville, there's been remarkably little. We've not had to issue a single citation to a single business. People understand if you come and teach safety... They're willing to follow it. And if we can teach safety well enough, we can reopen, I hope, safely and begin to get back to work. But we're with COVID for a long time. We're going to have to learn how to live with it safely going forward. And the restart, the refasing is a prolonged level of, an effect, teaching for everybody about how to operate your business, keep your employees safe, keep your customers safe. But let's get back to work.
5: We certainly wish you and the entire city of Nashville the very best. Nashville Mayor John Cooper, thank you for being with us today.
7: Thank you. Come back anytime.
5: (laughs) It's a great city. I plan on it. Whether it's working, learning, or just trying to communicate with friends and family, Internet use is way up, as we all adjust to so much time now spent staying at home. So with all of this screen time, how do we keep our kids safe? Joining us is cybersecurity expert, former White House chief information officer, and author of the book, Manipulated, Teresa Payton. Teresa, thanks for being with us. And My first question is, what is the right age to start talking to our kids about online safety?
8: The right age is any age where you hand a device to your kids. So you can start very simple when you hand it to a toddler. You can say something like mommy um, or daddy has set up something very specific that you can use this for. And then
5: you build upon those rules as the kids get older. All right. So what are the most important things we should be teaching our children about online safety? Absolutely, so the first one is beware of clicking on sort of these
8: sensationalistic headlines, uh, never seen before videos, oftentimes we call that clickbait, and oftentimes that could take them to a place on the internet that you would not want them to go, um, could introduce them to strangers. Uh, the second thing is monitor the memes they're taking a look at. Um, children and even young adults see memes as a very authentic expression. They see it as very organic, and they tend to trust the information in a meme and don't realize that can be a source of disinformation. Um, the other thing is, once you do allow them to have social media accounts, make sure you are there as well so you understand the privacy settings, the security settings, and watch those private group chats.
5: That can be a danger zone for strangers, but also Internet trolls and misinformation campaign. Yeah, do you have any specific rules that you recommend parents have for their kids online? I remember, in terms of that stranger danger, I was like, if you don't know that person, you know their face in person, you don't know them. You have to consider them to be, you know, a stranger, and that's scary because sometimes people befriend our children in these chat rooms or these games.
8: They do. Yeah, that is a perfect rule to have with them. Um, that stranger danger. I'll give you a quick example. I'm raising three generations these myself. Um, and one of the things I noticed in playing Fortnite, my son had picked out a particular outfit and somebody asked him, did you pick that out because you live in Hawaii? Um, and my, my son knew enough not to answer mm-hmm. yes or no. And you could see where it's an innocent question, but if it's an internet troll... Uh, trying to get access to your kids, it can be a, a loaded question. So that stranger danger is so important. The next rule is have a safe zone and start that young, but go all the way through young adulthood where you tell your child that no matter what happens on the internet, if something bad is going on, if they've made a mistake, somebody they know has made a mistake, if they come to you and invoke this safe zone, that you promise not to overreact, you promise not to ground them, it's better for them to come and enlist
5: your aid than to try and hide it from you. That can avoid a lot of potential issues in the future. That is such great advice. Teresa Payton, thank you so much for being with us today. We certainly appreciate it. It's great to be with you. Thank you. And there is much more ahead here on what you need to know. A woman who knows a thing or two about, let's just say, supporting other women. Coming to the aid of female entrepreneurs at a crucial moment, you'll understand. Stay with us.
0: This ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know, continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, What You Need to Know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach.
5: Small businesses have been hit especially hard during this crisis, with many stepping up to lend some key support. Well, our next guest is an entrepreneur who knows the ins and outs of starting small, the woman behind the now billion-dollar shapewear brand Spank Sarah Blakely. Sarah, thanks for being with us. And I know you know that families and employees of small businesses are really feeling the effects of this crisis. And so you
9: recently made a big announcement
5: to support female-run small businesses. Tell us about it.
9: I did. I decided to donate $5 million to help support female entrepreneurs, and I'm hoping it will help their families, their communities and their employees. I know firsthand, like you mentioned, what it feels like to be a small business owner. And I wanted to lend additional support during this time to help them get through this crisis.
5: I'm sure it is greatly, greatly appreciated. Now, I know the red backpack is very symbolic for you, and so is the amount. How does this tie back to the humble beginnings of your small business journey?
9: Yeah, I named the fund the Red Backpack Fund because I started Spanx with my own lucky red backpack from college. (laughs) And it was with me every step of the way when I started Spanx. And it's now hanging in a framed glass box at the Spanx headquarters. And I'm giving 1,000 different women $5,000 each and their own lucky red backpack. And the $5,000 is because that's what I actually started Spanx with. 20 years ago. And I've never taken any outside money from any investors along the way. And so I I think this is symbolic also of starting small but dreaming big. And I want that for so many other female entrepreneurs. All right. So $5,000
5: to a billion dollar company. You're the CEO. (laughs) You're the founder of Spanx. You heard a lot of no's, I'm sure, when you were starting out. So what advice do you have for small business owners who are struggling right now?
9: Well, the biggest advice I could give you is right now, work on your mindset. Believe it or not, I think mindset is our biggest asset as an entrepreneur, and being able to take obstacles and turn them into opportunities is such a key component of surviving as an entrepreneur. And so I would say be kind to yourself right now and really try to work on that positive self-talk and then really you know, get resourceful right now about how you're spending your money and your time.
5: You know, I love this because helping the community is who you are. Not only do you have this red backpack fund, but
9: you also started Frontline Dine with your husband. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, right when this crisis hit, we just started dividing our thinking on how could we help. And The food insecure was one bucket. The restaurant industry and everyone being out of work there was another bucket. Um, Obviously female entrepreneurs was one. So we called our friends in town that have restaurants and we have been buying their food every day and having it delivered to the frontline workers at all the hospitals here in Atlanta to support those heroes that are helping us get through this.
5: Yeah, well, you are a hero supporting other heroes, so we certainly appreciate it. And thank you for being with us today. Sarah Blakely, thank you for all that you do. We appreciate it.
9: Thank you so much.
5: Well, it's time now to take a good look at a lot of your medical questions that have been pouring in for our Dr. Jen Ashton. So Dr. Jen joining us now, and we'll get straight to the first question. Do medical professionals think that we will have to deal with COVID-19 Every year, like the flu, or once we have a vaccine, will we be done with it?
6: Well, there is precedent, Amy. We know that all of the other strains of coronavirus, of which some cause the common cold, we do have to deal with them every year. We also know that the class of coronaviruses, these are RNA viruses, are prone to mutation, and and this one is no different. It is slowly mutating, but not in a way that's making it more severe. So that's something that the vaccine developers are looking at, whether or not the vaccine that they developed this time will stick for the future. But there's still a lot that we don't know. Yeah, still a lot to learn when
5: it comes to that. And the next question also deals with the vaccine. If a vaccine for COVID-19 is developed, what will be be
6: done to encourage or compel anti-vaxxers
5: to be vaccinated?
6: Well, You know, that's a really important question. We've seen with this global health crisis here in the United States, the unprecedented step, if you remember back, um, unprecedented, where quarantines were instituted for people returning to the United States from China. Um, So it is possible that the federal government could institute legal action against people who don't vaccinate against COVID-19 because of the significant health crisis or threat that it represents. And we do see some of those legal measures in place with other communicable and infectious diseases like tuberculosis, for example. So we'll have to see what happens with that. Because it is important that everyone complies, correct, from a medical standpoint. Exactly. I mean, there are some things that if people opt out, it only represents a threat for that person. But there are other things that if they opt out, it may represent a bigger threat for their community uh, and society at large. So that will have to be worked out in the future. All right. Next question. I still don't totally understand the
5: basis behind antibody testing. Doesn't this only show previous infection, not immunity?
6: That person is not alone. Uh, there are so many people who are struggling with antibody testing and the understanding it is complex and complicated, this field of immunology. Um, the, the short answer to that question is, yes, it shows evidence of past infection. It doesn't tell us whether we're protected in the future. But most infections, when you mount an immune or antibody response and you make the, this class known as IgG, IgG. You are, in fact, protected in the future, but they still are figuring that out. And we've heard Dr. Anthony Fauci, among other infectious disease experts, say they suspect that people will be protected in the future, but they don't know for sure. Okay. And this next question I have seen
5: popping up on social media in recent days, and I know you have, too. Is there a connection between
6: covid-19 and altitude sickness? The short answer is there are some features that are similar. So what we're seeing in some patients with COVID-19 pneumonia is that their blood oxygen levels drop to a point that in many other scenarios would be incompatible with someone talking and thinking. Some patients with COVID-19 with this low level of blood oxygen They're fine. They're talking to people. Um, And so there are certain features of altitude sickness that are similar. One of the things that people are looking at then, if they have some of these similarities in terms of their clinical features, can one of the medications known as Diamox that I know you've taken, I've taken it as well, to prevent altitude sickness, can that be used in treating some of this low blood oxygen level? We call it hypoxemia that's seen in patients with COVID 19. And again, being researched, being studied. Yeah, very interesting indeed. Okay, Dr. Jen Ashton, as always, thank you so much. And you
5: can submit your questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J. Ashton. And right here, when we come back, extraordinary essential workers. In today's spotlight, a spirited effort, employees transforming liquor into much needed hand sanitizer and hoping kindness is catching. The big push from Hollywood's Laura Dern and family.
0: This ABC News special... COVID-19, what you need to know, continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach.
5: Back now on What You Need to Know in our special highlight all this week, introducing you to so many of the extraordinary essential workers around the country going to great lengths for the rest of us. Meet Jared Hillerby, head of operations at Fabrizia Spirits, where they have pivoted production to critically needed hand sanitizer.
10: My name is Jared Hillaby. I am 28 years old. I am the operation manager here at Britsier Spirits in Southern New Hampshire. I've been with the company over three years now. I oversee production and quality control here at the factory. When the pandemic first broke, I was beyond worried about losing my job. At the time, my girlfriend was three months pregnant, and we were already worried about financially saving for our newborn child. Once this broke out, she had to leave her job at a grocery store because we were unsure of the side effects to the baby during her pregnancy. Many of our customers are restaurants, so I thought we were going to have to close too. I needed to keep working. That way, when our newborn baby arrives, we're able to support them financially. The story where I work makes cello and canned cocktails. It was a blessing when the government and the FDA approved distilleries to make hand sanitizer. Lucky enough, we kept all of our old equipment from when the company first started, so we were able to retrofit that old line into what we are now producing hand sanitizer on, keeping our current Limoncello line and our hand sanitizer line completely separate. We were able to quickly get it out to those who need it the most and keep us employed. We are producing about 8,000 bottles a day. We're donating about 15% of what we produce to hospitals and first responders. We are selling the product to our regular liquor retailers and some major corporations. It means everything to me. Knowing that the huge weight is off my shoulders, so financially being able to still support my family, my pregnant girlfriend, a newborn child who is soon to arrive, the first responders out there who's fighting on the front lines of protecting us as we go. So hopefully one day all this is over.
5: Wow. It's a win, win, win. And here to talk more about Fabrizia Spirit's transformation is the owner and co-founder, Phil Mastriani. And Phil, thanks so much for being with us. It was it was so heartwarming hearing from Jared. What has the response been like from your other employees?
11: Um, uh, thanks for having us, Amy. And My brother Nick and I could not be prouder. Going into this pandemic, we had a core of five employees. Each one of them has stepped up in some amazing ways, taking on responsibilities that would have been inconceivable before all of this. Uh, But most of all, they keep coming to work. I mean, we're all getting tough questions from family. Is it safe to be coming here? But we all share Jared's same vision of making this product that's essential for those that need it the most right now.
5: Yeah, Talk about why it was so important for you to keep your company open.
11: Uh, my brother Nick and I started our business 10 years ago like so many other small business owners. We've invested our entire lives into it. Uh, you know, We have some amazing employees we've gained along the way like Jared, great customers. So the idea of everything we've worked for for 10 years vanishing because of this virus in a few months was just inconceivable. Uh, we had to find a way. Um, in addition, I have three little kids at home. Um, including a two-month-old baby rose. So they're counting on me. I mean, the whole thing's just very real.
5: And it certainly is. And, and Phil, I have to ask, did you know anything about producing hand sanitizer before you decided to do this? And what was the turnaround like?
11: Okay, so the, the honest answer is absolutely not. We had no experience. <laughs> and I actually don't think I've ever even purchased a bottle of hand sanitizer in my life. However, um, the good news is when the FDA made temporary guidance allowing companies like ours to begin producing hand sanitizer. They included the recipe, which includes Mm. ethanol. That's the ingredient that does all the germ killing. That's something we have a lot of experience with. So producing it was quite easy.
5: Uh, It's incredible what you're doing for your company, for your employees, and for all of those first responders who need that hand sanitizer so desperately. Phil Mastriani, thank you so much. Stay well, be safe.
11: Thank you so much. Take care.
5: All right. We're going to turn now to Dr. Jen Ashton for her final thoughts today. Dr. Jen.
6: Well, Amy, I read an interesting article in Scientific American all about this concept in psychology of post-traumatic growth. You can think of it as kind of the opposite of PTSD. As many as 50% of people going through a crisis or stress or a trauma can come out the other side with a renewed sense of purpose, a greater appreciation for life, uh, maybe a new meaning to what we're doing. So I think now when we're in the setting of All of this uncertainty, we have this opportunity as individuals, as communities, and in fact, as the world recovers from this, to even find opportunity in terms of post-traumatic growth. Anything is possible, even in a pandemic. I love that, Dr. Jen Ashton, as always. Thank you so
5: much. And when we come back, the power of a single good deed. It turns out it's very contagious. Laura Dern is up next on the global movement she and her family members are hoping to spark in you.
0: This ABC News special continues after this. You're listening to an ABC News special, COVID-19, what you need to know. Once again, here is ABC News correspondent Amy Robach
5: welcome back everyone we could all use some extra positivity during this time especially on social media well laura dern and her daughter jaya are lending a helping hand by starting a social media initiative called all good deeds 2020 the premise simply doing a good dean any one thing that helps someone else and then post a photo or a video of it with the hashtag all good deeds 2020 the goal is that these single actions can grow into a global movement of kindness. Laura Dern is joining us now to tell us more about it. And Laura, thank you so much for being with us. And I want to ask, where did you get the idea to create something like All Good Deeds 2020? It's so simple, yet so powerful.
12: Well, thank you, amazing Amy. I'm so happy to hear your voice and to be with you all this devastating time. You know, we are all desperately looking for ways to help and we were talking to our dear friends brian and stephanie brainstorming about what we can do and jaya my daughter started sharing how teenagers and children all around the world want to help and at times feel so longing to do something given that they can't donate funds and there are many things that they can't do but they realize that they connect through social media and want to share these small acts of kindness, hoping that they can grow. And Jaya, along with a young lady named Ava, who I think you know, In fact, I think it's <laughs> your daughter, daughter. <laughs> um, and many other friends have been reaching out and, and it is spreading and it literally is just that, beautifully described by you, doing a small act of kindness, whatever it is, posting it and then reposting All Good Deeds 2020. We repost there and we watch the kindness grow.
5: Talk a little bit about what some of the good deeds people have done so far that you've been able to repost.
12: So many
5: children making
12: handmade cards for... Healthcare workers that are in their building, uh, someone singing in the street for neighbors, a bubble maker putting on a performance of making bubbles in front of a senior center, people doing care calls for various uh, people that they work with who are in need, seeing if they need groceries, dropping off groceries to elder neighbors, fostering animals for those who can't provide for them making homemade soap. Uh, There have been just beautiful, beautiful acts of kindness. And it's people of all ages sharing their incredible good deeds.
5: All ages, all walks of life. What do you want to say to people who are at home, what they can do? Engage your family.
12: Engage all family members. I think we feel so desperate. and, And for those of us as parents who are home with our children, that we're trying to figure out ways to help. But they're as impacted by the news and as impacted by those being so deeply affected and watching our incredible first responders and every age wants to help. And just putting a smile on someone's face makes a massive difference right
5: now. It certainly does. All good deeds 2020. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Jaya. Thank you for inspiring us all during these tough times. We certainly appreciate it. And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening.
0: ABC News, honored, winner of four Edward R. Murrow Awards. ABC News, America's number one news choice.
6: Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer.